Well, welcome everybody to our next episode of the Voices Project Dialogue Series. Um, uh, for those who listened into the last episode, it was titled The HPV Conundrum uh, with Prof Lim. And we had a very interesting uh, sort of very, you know, going here, going there, talking about various different aspects and things like that. But today it's actually going to be um, uh, a whole different uh, geography and a whole different topic. And it's going to be very exciting. I think we're going to be uh, talking about things that matter as it relates to uh, uh, infrastructure and civil service and the overcoming or coming together, one should say, actually, of various communities and different thinkings and opinions to create a better living, uh, uh, a community that actually works together and sort of lives together. And we're going to talk about how that then impacts and works in various different aspects, uh, touching upon the string of health that we try and keep on the Voices Project. Uh, but let me uh, first welcome to the discussion today. So uh, welcome everybody again. I, my name is Rohit Segal. I do ramble on a lot uh, for those listeners who've been uh, listening to me already or know me. Um, uh, but my name is Rohit Segal. I'm the chief strategist at the Voices Project, uh, which is an Asia-Pacific focused uh, nonprofit based here in Singapore. And I'm joined today by uh, Fahim Ali, uh, the CEO of Khairan Cantonment Board at, with the government of Pakistan. Uh, Fahim and I, it's actually quite interesting. We go back uh, in an interesting uh, academic connection. Uh, he was uh, my senior, I should say, at the LKY School of Public Policy. I joined after he had already graduated. Uh, and that is therefore a way that we've always found things that are very common and very uh, important uh, to, to ourselves and to those around us. Fahim is a career civil servant, which is fascinating because I rarely get the opportunity to talk to uh, the civil service in the context of the topics of so many different multilateral dialogues. And uh, he's had more than 10 years uh, working with the government of Pakistan, uh, working on various assignments in different capacities, both local government and more interestingly enough, even abroad. Now, the reason why I wanna talk with Fahim is because I've been following him and listening to what he's been up to. And you know, he's currently serving as the CEO of the Karyan Cantonment Board, uh, which is a local government. So think about it this way for listeners who don't really quite sometimes under the, understand the connections that there may be centralized governments and centralized ways that you know, budgets and priorities, et cetera, are developed, but local governance you know, at the end of the day, is something that is so vital and necessary because it's about creating local priorities and looking around at your community, your town, your city, and thinking, how am I going to actually work through the various complications to make this a better living standard? Now, uh, Fahim was also the first officer in that way to develop a budget in Pakistan that was participatory. Uh, it was solving problems in Karyan by engaging citizens, and we'll hear more about that from him in a bit. And uh, I found that's quite a unique hallmark of his style. I'm going to enjoy this discussion because he doesn't mince his words. He talks about what it takes to get things done and make sure that people feel that there is a, a movement forward. So basically, um, I guess with that, uh, and he's... Uh, uh, I'm sure blushing at this uh, sort of introduction that I have gone on about, but it's important as we talk in this more audio manner uh, that you can all sort of get the feel of the people and the, and the, and the person across from my virtual uh, table here. 
Fahim, thank you so much for joining this discussion and talking about your recent experiences. Thank you so much, Rohit. I must appreciate uh, the kind of introduction you have given. And uh, uh, I would say that uh, I'm a, a very humble person, but you have tried to project me in a way uh, that I'm finding it very uh, stressful, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think in, in, in this sort of time that we're living in, where we can't sort of just literally hop on a plane, get on a car, drive somewhere, meet each other, sit over a coffee, podcasts and the way that we can create this dialogue and to introduce folks like you know who've not heard uh of of of, of people such as yourself who are doing the things they are i think it's just so important so well welcome with thank that you. And thank, you so thank you so much and so i think well what are we going to talk about today so we're going to talk about uh pakistan's community driven value creation not a topic that is being talked about enough and that's my own curiosity that this pandemic, as we all know it, has uh, mobilized huge amounts of advances uh, in innovations across public and private. And when you look at the diversity of Asia, stakeholders are on various different stages of this journey to try and pursue uh, achievements, personal growth, personal health, uh, overall development and betterment for themselves. And it's interesting because, you know, the I think there was a recent APAC uh, health index, which is which came out by the Economist Group last year, that said that while our region trails in personalized community technologies and strategies, it's so strong in initiatives and infrastructure, and probably no probably no more so than in Pakistan, which is a country that's in a way beaten the odds to showcase what resilience can do in the face of some very hard odds, and that's the curiosity to sit with Fahim and hear and maybe amplify some of these success stories that can drive potential key policies. So while we talk about what Fahim is doing and things that he's getting up to, I think what's important is that we see how a lot of this is actually methodologies and ideas really that we could think about transporting to other parts of the Asia and Pacific region. What brings stakeholders together? How do we create community value? Um, how do we create value creation more importantly, that stems from the public sector. And in a way, you know, we drop these silos, you know, the public and the private side. So the question we're going to ask today, and I'm going to be posing to Fahim, is in the context of Pakistan's effort in community-driven value creation, is what can be done in our diverse region that can help reduce fragmentation, unlock integrated solutions in this I don't know, what do we call this, post-COVID era, I don't know, next chapter, new normal. And in a way, can uh, this new age public civil service be the catalyst for the change? So with that somewhat uh, extended uh, context, let's dive right into it, man. So um, the pandemic, uh, you know, has basically, as I was saying earlier, it's got, you know, huge advances. There's innovation, public and private, you know, sort of coming together. We're hearing so much about that. So let's ask you, I mean, how has the pandemic and the aftermath uh, redefined or should I say re-articulated the role of local governance? And thank you, Rohit, uh, for setting the context. And uh, before I dwell into this uh, question, I must congratulate you on taking this initiative of the Voice Project and uh, making people hear uh, what some of the underrepresented voices may have to 
say. So hats off to you for taking this initiative. Thank you very much. Uh, well, now, dwelling on to your question, I, uh, if you see that local governments and uh, especially in the urban areas, uh, they were at the forefront of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, I say so because uh, the data suggests that 95% of all cases recorded in cities uh, were uh, reported in the cities in the first few months. Already urban areas were facing a lot of challenges in terms of uh, poor services, poor infrastructure, uh, uh, poor public transport. Uh, the COVID-19 crisis, I believe, amplified that. And that was a, a huge challenge, especially and when the restrictions were imposed, uh, there were economic consequences, not only for the individuals, but also for the uh, businesses. And uh, not many businesses thrived in that environment. And we as at Kharia, we had to give the uh, rebates or uh, tax, uh, tax uh, you know, rebates to the uh, economic uh, businesses, to the businesses who were doing this, uh, all these activities. So, however, when it came to uh, the performance of the local government, we faced a bit of a challenge in reaching out to the community. Luckily, luckily, I would say that due to social media, Facebook, WhatsApp, the mediums were already there. We already had a little bit of that presence on the uh, on these social medias. But then we capitalized it when we capitalized on uh, sorry, we capitalized on. Uh, social media by forming different groups of the communities, by uh, recording video messages, by communicating to them what they are supposed to do, uh, all under the guidance of the federal government and the provincial government, uh, because the guidelines, nobody knew how to fight this challenge, and the guidelines were coming from the WHO and were communicated to us through the federal as well as the provincial government. So that was one challenge. So basically, the first, the the things that we uh, realized that the urban uh, local government has to enhance its capacity to absorb such shocks mm. because they were unprecedented. The things that has helped us in past were uh, the, uh, the fight that we had uh, in controlling the dengue and the polio eradication program. Right. So, Pakistan's been very, um, I think, uh, worked very hard for those eradication programs. And so that, in a way, fortified, I guess, yeah. the experience. That's fascinating. That's so, fascinating. so the infrastructure was there. So uh, that makes our job much easier when it came to the rolling down of the vaccination program, actually. So uh, I might touch upon that uh, later. Uh, so local governments not only had to improve their capacities, but also had to improve their reach to the communities. Uh, and this was done by very rapid, rapidly digitizing our uh, services. Uh, we developed an app called CB Care. It was already already in a uh, you know somewhat formatted shape, but not that mature. So we matured it so people can register their complaints. People can file their applications uh, through that CB Care applications, and anybody could anyone can download it on uh, on their smartphones. Uh, so that's one. The, the second thing that we developed was uh, a complete e-procurement system. Uh, because the works and services, most of them are outsourced to the private sector. Uh, and But there is a method to, method to awarding that uh, contract uh, under the uh, procurement rules. Uh, because we have to uh, openly invite, openly float uh, uh, the bids 
and then people, you know, in return, we call, we have to call the quotations and then the bid, and then we openly have to see the which one uh, meets the criteria. And uh, in, in their presence, we have to award the contract so that everything is transparent. So uh, explain that part of it, because I think for the listeners, I mean, I think this is an important thing that stays mostly behind the scenes for a lot of people. When you suddenly see a new community center being built, a new park being made, a new, uh, you know, uh, road <laughs> being built, all this comes from, I think, as you're describing it, Fahim, a, uh, a tender process that is done manually. And yeah. then the logistics, meaning that once you've opened it and then declaring it has to be done in a transparent and public way, yeah. you know, it just sounds uh, extremely hard. But I, th I think it's, it's good for the listeners who might not be aware of mm -hmm. all the back work that would go in yeah. this more manual process. And what you're saying yeah. was able mm -hmm. to be uh, sort of lightened a little bit by using the technology factors. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, for instance, uh, taking your example, taking the lead from your example, that if we are supposed to build a community hall, so uh, first we have to design it and then we have to, you know, do the bill of quantities, et cetera. So we, we prepare that document and then we float that document either to the Pepera website or we place it on the notice board as well. Uh, and if depending upon the amount, we might have to publicize it in the newspapers as well. Mm -hmm. So then people bid for that project. They deposit the uh, bid money and then the projects are evaluated. Right. So, but there is a, a day, normally 15 days time is given uh, from the date of issuance of that notice. After 15 days, uh, roughly speaking, after 15 days, everybody is invited. It's upon them whether they come or not. So a time is fixed. So all the tenders are open uh, in front of them, in front of the uh, uh, you know participants or anybody from the public can also be part of that. So what we do is normally we engage uh, local community members. So we take pictures as well. As a video, as a as a record that these people were present, we mark attendance as well. Uh, and if depending upon the value of the project, we make a video as well for a pictorial evidence to ensure that there is a transparency. Nothing, nothing, uh, uh, you know, nothing fishy in that. So basically, it's to make people realize that this they are transparent. So that's the process we follow. Mm -hmm. Now, what COVID nineteen did? COVID nineteen, uh, unfortunately, due to restrictions, people couldn't come to the office because we didn't allow that fifty percent. People of 50% of the staff was working from home, 50% was in the office. So uh, there was a need actually then how this procurement process has to be uh, developed uh, so that it can be done online. And hats off to the team, I must say, hats off to the team, uh, the ID team, uh, that not only invented, but very quickly within, within two, three months, they rolled out this program. Wow. And now, uh, now, now how, how does it work? So basically, we float. Uh, we float the tender on a Pepera website, on our uh, on our website as well as on the Facebook, mm -hmm. and we display it on our notice board so everybody knows. That's the that's the government process. So everybody knows that yes, there is a tender, and if anybody is interested, have that uh, capabilities, then they can basically be part of this uh, tender process. So now they feed all their data. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if they meet the uh, eligibility criteria then the system automatically generates a comparative statement. Wow. Okay, he bids, A bid this, B bid this, C bid this, uh, this was the cost, uh, work experience, all, all, all things taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. And then a comparative statement comes. So everybody knows. So now the control delivers that, for instance, uh, uh, 
or my staff or myself or our government offices used to have that lever is no more there. So it's all transparent now automatically. The system generates that uh, comparative statement. And, and then the regular process follows. Uh, we put that before the board after, after due diligence and then board finally gets that approval. So that's how uh, the local government actually had to re-engineer its processes, uh, digitize itself uh, by, uh, by uh, you know, adopting such technological measures. And uh, this, is, this is not the end, actually. A lot of local governments had to, were facing the uh, digital connectivity issues. Right. For so that, bandwidth, yeah. and literally just the ability to have bandwidth reach and ability. Wow, okay. Right. So for that, we uh, roped in the largest uh, telecommunication operator in Pakistan mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and some of the other companies as well. Uh, we said, okay, we provide you uh, favorable uh, incentives. We'll incentivize your investment in, let's say, Karia. Right. So now 60%, as of today, 60% of Karia Endowment Board is fully digitalized on fiber optics. Right. And this is the first local government, first cantonment board, I must say, first cantonment board to have done that. And, uh, uh, and I shared one picture on the LinkedIn in yeah. which we show the connection, the fiber optics uh, connection has reached at the door in the Porsche area, mm -hmm. as well as in the, in the uh, you know, slum area. Yeah. So the infrastructure is making its reach. Now it's up to the people uh, if they wish to use it or not. So you, you've created, um, so it's interesting because what you just described is moving from a somewhat manual, analog, less transparent, kind of a hard way to put things together. You've moved it into a more technology-driven, transparent medium, but you've also then realized that, hang on, to make in order for this to cascade where it has to go, you need bandwidth. So then you brought private public to sort of say, okay, let's make this happen. And then you not just stop there, you thought, okay, we've got to make this an equitable access. So then you sort of brought equity into this and saying, so isn't it interesting that, and, and this is why these conversations are so important is that the pandemic has no doubt created a lot of havoc and it's created a lot of hardship, but what it's created is innovation, right? I mean, you've just yes. three, three interesting innovations and I'm sure it doesn't just stop there. It's going to now become ongoing. Exactly. Uh, the, uh, the other day, in fact, yesterday, I was talking to some of the uh, companies who train people uh, to earn money on uh, e-commerce platforms. Mm. So we are collaborating with them that, yes, now we have the fiber optics, we have the broadband services, uh, and we'll give you place. You come here, we won't charge you anything for a year or two. You come, invest here, train the local youth. Mm. And make them enable them to uh, uh, become a freelancers or you know earn, uh, to uh, enhance their capacity to uh, for a global labor market so they can tap into the global market. So that's uh, yeah. this is this this is something that we are going to build on that infrastructure. Now we know the fiber optics is there. Now we wish to create capture the value that fiber optics has to offer. I, I didn't think about that because the minute you've got access and fast uh, bandwidth and everything else, there's another factor. You moved local community and governance into being plugged directly into the global uh, e-commerce uh, yeah. uh, capabilities and opportunities, right? I mean, suddenly someone who's sort of skilled and now you know ready to work in some respects can be trained or can access 
uh, websites or you know opportunities halfway across the world because of this sheer fact that they're now able to simply you know have the access as they need it i mean is is there something in that then that when you talk about the question of sustainability always factors and comes in because moving things to a technology driven uh, system is seen obviously no doubt as progressive and where a lot of developing economies have to now embrace um, but at the same time when you talk about and i think this is probably an interesting uh, segue to a factor that sustainability is something which is always a bit of a double-edged sword either you can create something and it's going to take a lot of effort and time and it's therefore unsustainable but then if you try and build uh, let's say what the SGD 11 goals and for the listeners here who are asking now what is SGD 11 Fahim is a bit of an expert here so he'll describe that to us but essentially it's the idea that you can have inclusive and sustainable cities and I think what you're reflecting is that if you can create or hand the community and the individuals in your community the ability to have productivity you know and other things that don't hold them back uh, you can also find that that can result in so many other benefits so how does sustainable policy in that context, and maybe you want to describe SDG 11 much better than I've just loosely uh, described it, but you've taken those principles and you're trying to bring it to Karia where it can actually start to produce outcomes and, you know, talk, talk a bit about that, I think, because this is where yeah. it begins to get interesting. Well, this is, uh, indeed, it is very interesting, actually. So S, S, I believe that SDG 11 is one such goal uh, you know, that might encapsulate uh, each of the other 16 uh, sustainable goals in it. Uh, you talk about hunger, you talk about poverty, you talk about energy, uh, responsible production and consumption. Uh, when it comes to SDG 11, it's somehow, I, I see it that way. Maybe uh, experts may differ from me, but I see it that way that SDG 11 is one such goal because it, it's related to the cities, it's related to the communities. How do we make them inclusive? How do we make them functional? How do we make them resilient? Uh, so everything, you know, for resilience, you have, your, you have to see it from the health perspective. You have to see it from the poverty perspective. Uh, if, if those needs are addressed only, then you feel that you'll be, you'll be resilient, your water needs, sanitation needs. So this is uh, an overcompensating uh, kind of a goal. That's why I'm fascinated about it. And luckily, by the virtue of my job, uh, I get this opportunity to work on, on this particular goal. So normally, how do we translate the goals uh, spelled in the SDG 11? We basically try to first envision, then we engage and uh, respond to the needs of the community, and then we collaborate with them. We don't just listen and say, okay, now you, we have listened to you and we'll do as, as we please. That's not the case. We collaborate, collaborate with them and then we deliver with the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, that's the hallmark of uh, Korean Cantonment Board's uh, administration. We don't see ourselves as civil servants. We see ourselves as social entrepreneurs. So we believe that we are here to solve the problems in, in that fashion. I give you an example, basically. So in Korea, this sustainable uh, uh, urban development originates by envisioning uh, or by taking an initiative or directly engaging stakeholder in our attempt to nurture uh, sustainable cities and communities. In this way, we basically empower uh, community to spell their needs and we join hands with them on shaping the policy. Some, most of the times we try to use the bottom-up approach and uh, sometimes we use top-down approach. And in case of top-down approach, then we try to sell them 
the idea behind uh, the policy that we are trying to introduce or the development we are trying to uh, carry out. This helps us in identifying the problem uh, and then, uh, you know, engage community in finding the solutions and, and uh, deliver that on ground. And interestingly, when we roll down the program, we don't only uh, keep the monitoring part on our part. We engage community, we make them, we identify the right people and say that now you okay, because this, most of the services, as I told you that uh, we try to outsource them mm -hmm. and it's a third party. So the community has the ownership because they are the taxpayers. So mm -hmm. they might be more concerned. I'm just giving an example. They might be more concerned than me. So I tell them it's your uh, money. And if you can collaborate with us or if you can give your time, uh, then perhaps it would be a good initiative if you can uh, take a look on the programs or the projects that are being rolled out. So that so helps us. So, so, so you're saying you bring in, um, I guess, obviously the people who are going to be able to achieve or develop that particular program, but your inclusivity aspect is that you're saying to the neighborhood, to the community, to the, uh, I guess, the people at large, that ultimately, it's mm -hmm. your, it's yours. So you're part of this, right? Yeah. And you're allowing them a seat at the table to be able to at least you know have some accountability and other factors as well which is quite unique i mean it's, it's, it's sad to say the fact that a lot of public policies are driven in general right from a top-down measure but you're sort of building this entrepreneurial i like this word social enterprise in government concept that's yeah. fascinating true actually I, I, uh, one of the line that i most of the time use when talking to the community i say them i'm a uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm an actor on two years contract. <laughs> normally, normally, that's the time that uh, we get to serve in one place of the two right, right. So basically, you are the ones who are going to live here. Mm -hmm. So it's, it should be you who should envision how this Karian Cantonment Board area should look like. And it should be you uh, who must take the ownership of everything that we do. That's because right. my interest might be restricted to two years. You are going to uh, live long uh, here. So this has helped us shape number of projects. And I would very quickly like to uh, tell you uh, one prime example of that. Uh, I'll, uh, let's talk about the downtown area, let's say. Mm -hmm. So the downtown area of Karing Entonement, uh, it mostly comprised of the central markets. Uh, there was family parks, a sports town. Uh, but unfortunately, all of them were in a poor shape. So if the visitor used to visit such places, they used to feel unwelcome. Uh, the, the, as a result, if the number of consumers or visitors are uh, less then economic activity would be less, so social collisions would be less, uh, meaning thereby the infrastructure is not being exploited carefully or the innovation is not taking place because for innovation to take place, people have to share ideas like uh, uh, we are sharing with each other. So basically, uh, we took up the task that we need to rejuvenate this downtown and we, we imagined it as a, as a dynamic place where social collisions happen, where there's a, uh, you know, a buzz around, people must celebrate and interact, play, use this infrastructure that is available to them. So for that, we had to upgrade the infrastructure and that's where we bridge in the community. Then how do you imagine this park? How do we see this sports ground? How do you see uh, these markets? And as per their aspirations, we try to develop them. Um, uh, uh, let me give an example. In the sports ground, such a beautiful place. Uh, uh, it's covered 
uh, uh, all around uh, its peripheries are covered with with the lush green trees. Oh. Wonderful, a beautiful place. If if I get an opportunity, I'll I'll share a picture with you. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, at that place, there was not even a single jogging track. So people come there. Some some might play, and others are no place for sitting there. Uh, likewise, if we talk about the uh, D Park, which is a family park, hardly three benches were there in the park. Uh, umbrellas installed for the sitting places to cover the sitting places were in shabby conditions. The rides were in the poor conditions. Only one portion of the park was being used, whereas 70% of the area was underutilized. So by engaging the public, by engaging senior citizens, uh, families, uh, women, uh, we were able to capture their aspirations and needs. And we translated those aspirations and needs with them on paper first, and gradually, because funds or funding is always an issue in developing the, or rejuvenating the infrastructure. And gradually, over a period of 1.5 year, we were able to improve things step by step, step by step, step by step. That's and That's yeah, and uh, the prime thing that uh, uh, we improved the gates as well. Uh, we installed open uh, screens to make them convert them into an open house cinemas. And every uh, other week, uh, we show them movies. So that created a snowball effect that, yes, something is happening to happening for us. So the vibrancy is there. People started to celebrate, OK, these uh, and, and they used to come and, uh, you know, and, uh, appreciate uh, our team effort. Mm -hmm. They also used to say that, OK, 20 years back, 30 years back, this is how we used to live. The environment was so beautiful. We were, uh, but unfortunately, with the passage of time, the war on terror and things like that, uh, nobody paid attention to that because of that security paradigm uh, mindset. We tried uh, the things were uh, left unattended, and as a result, uh, this uh, all infrastructure uh, dilapidated. Uh, um, but but now things have improved, so we have started to take the ownership. So. Uh, the impact of this initiative was uh, so powerful that people from the nearby neighborhoods, they started to visit Kari <laughs> as well. Right. So the economic activity. Uh, right. They're going to come, they're going to eat, they're going to drink, they're going to spend a bit of money. That's always good for local business. True. Yeah, nice. And the good thing about all these development was that it was in an inclusive in nature needs of all segments of the society were we at least we tried our best to take care uh, to uh, take care of all uh, their needs and aspirations uh, so that's how i believe that uh, normally this is something that sdg talks about by developing public spaces one of the one of the goal in uh, sdg 11 is uh, improving public spaces so that's how we have shaped our public spaces that's brilliant. I mean, that, that, I mean, that's such a, I mean, see, we, we need granular examples like that because look, I mean, I, I come from a generation and this is a, this is an Asia wide thing and I'm sure a global thing, but I mean, you know, from the perspective of growing up in Malaysia and then in Singapore and it had such a, it has such a charming feel that it didn't matter if you were in an urban environment, there was a community sense and these uh, uh, movies, I think if there's folks who are, let's say anywhere, you know, uh, north of 45 age old, it'll realize and remember these large screens that used to be put up against walls and, you know, people would bring their food down and, you know, you'd be sharing someone's meal from here, sharing someone's meal from there and your friends would sit down. 
doing your homework while you're watching the latest, uh, for some reason, cowboy movies. I'm not sure why, but uh, you know, um, the, the bringing back that sense that a community can begin to have not just accountability, see the progress, be more inclusive. It has so many other functions as well. I mean, part of the questions are always, can we see infrastructure? And infrastructure can also have its relationships back into health in a very clear way, because if you have strong infrastructures, you're going to have a healthier living standards, you're going to have better access to healthcare, and so on. But in the general sense, as you've started to build civil society around you in Karyan, that um, is there, do you think infrastructure almost is uh, in relationship to a sense of change and progress? So someone that, you know, you just mentioned said, you know, this used to be how it was and it hasn't been like that. And now I can see things can change. Is there a way that people begin to get more, uh, I guess, engaged with what's going around them because infrastructure is the most visible way. So for instance, I mean, we talked about this, I think when we spoke some time ago that, you know, this, this, this idea that you can also not just be about creating parks and other places, but the physical living, the solid waste management, the sheer, you know, uh, you know being aware of where disposal and waste, et cetera, are going. Talk a bit about that because I think that's an integral part that, again, from running a civil service at local governance level, are the kind of things that people just assume, to use that term, it's someone else's problem. But it's uh -huh. your problem. You've got to figure out everything on how to get waste from point A to point B. You've got to change behaviors. You've got to do so many factors uh, that will create a healthier and a cleaner city where people can enjoy the parks and the movies and so on and so on. So talk a bit about how your work on, I guess, what you started to develop in this area is creating progress, but how is it to look after all of that really hard stuff? You know, how do you get people to put the garbage where it needs to go? How do you find the place where the garbage needs to go to? And so on and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much, Rohit. This, is, uh, this was very challenging, in fact. Solid waste management. Uh, and it's, it's challenging, actually, not only in Pakistan, but uh, I guess throughout the developing world. Um, I was reading a blog the other day uh, from the World Bank, uh, and it says that 90% of the developing countries have this issue of unregulated uh, or illegal dumping and open waste. Uh, and Pakistan is no different uh, because only 40%, uh, I guess 40% of the Pakistanis, uh, they lack access to basic sanitation uh, facilities. So in Karia, uh, when it comes to the Porsche area, things were much better. Much better in a sense, yes, there was an issue of open uh, dumping waste, there was an issue of uh, unregulated uh, waste disposal, uh, but at least there was some infrastructure available, uh, some bins were available, uh, there were three, only three vehicles that were looking after the uh, core of the core of the Kankari board. But unfortunately, uh, there was a larger chunk of uh, places which is around the peripheries. And we didn't have any sort of service there. So this service was inequitable. And uh, roughly we generate around 54 tons of, uh, of waste on daily basis. And with three vehicles, how much, how much one could actually live? That's so that's, uh, that's, that was quite challenging. And uh, overall, if we speak about the overall solid waste management, effective solid waste management, 
it consumes around 20 to 50% of the budget of the municipal governments throughout the world. That's, wow. that's the standard. It's such a big challenge, such a big challenge. So uh, in Kharia, however, what we did in Kharia, uh, I'll share the case study of Kharia with you. So in Kharia, uh, to revamp all this issue, uh, we had to carry out a threadbare study uh, of the region, of the challenges, and of the resources. Fortunately, we had the manpower. The manpower was enough to cater the needs of the whole area. But since the services were only focused in a core area, which is very small area, uh, so uh, th that was giving us a very good picture. It looks as if, wow, sanitation is world-class here. But as soon we used to move on in the other areas, things were really uh, difficult. So we uh, figured out that there are around 13 vehicles, sanitation vehicles, they, which were uh, uh, declared condemned. And uh, the previous regime was preparing for uh, auctioning them so that they may procure two to three vehicles. It's a right strategy. I, I don't uh, say anything, think, don't, don't see any problem in that. However, by engaging an expert, we re-evaluated the condition of its vehicles mm -hmm. because we spelled out that perhaps we need around uh, 15 to 16 uh, trucks, compactors, rickshaws included uh, to provide services in the 100% of the area to improve our coverage and expansion. So the expert told us that if you, basically the cost benefit analysis was then that to procure this, you might need, uh, let's say around, uh, I'm giving an example, I don't have the exact number. Sure. Uh, you might need around 100 million rupees, let's say. Mm. Whereas the same work can be done uh, within, if, if you repair it, the same can be done within uh, 20 million uh, rupees, oh, let's say. And much yeah. of it, yeah, broadly speaking, broadly speaking, yeah. Broadly speaking, yes, yeah. to, to make our audience understand the difference. Yes. So we opted for the second one. And each month we fixed because uh, taking out this much amount of money is not feasible for a local government because we don't get any grant from uh, uh, from the external sources. So that, that's a unique for the cantonment boards actually. There are other, other local governments in Pakistan that directly receives the grant from the provincial as well as the federal government. But when it comes to cantonment boards, we generate our own resources. Just a small footnote for the audience. So, okay. So we started to uh, uh, repair them. And uh, within a passage of, uh, I would say around eight, nine months, uh, we improved, we had a running fleet of around 12 vehicles. And uh, one, another challenge that we faced in the, uh, in the peripheries, uh, which are uh, roughly, I would say, informal settlements and urban slums or villages, uh, their streets are very narrow, as you might have seen in India as well. Yeah. The streets are very narrow. So the ex accessing those places were, with, uh, was challenging. So we procured rickshaws, uh, you know, or we call that chandgadi or rickshaws, things right. like that. So took, and we took or three-wheeler auto rickshaws for our uh, yeah. auto rocking chair. Yeah, you all, we've all seen them. We've all uh, grown up with those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we procured three of them, and we engaged the community of those areas that since uh, this is a private land, not a government land, and we do not have any transfer station here, uh, so. What we can do is we can collect the, uh, you know, rubbish from the source. So only that strategy would work here. Otherwise, you will keep on dumping in someone else's open plot. Right. So that's, that's an, again, an illegal activity. Right. So uh, the community was taken on board and everybody appreciated the initiative. And uh, since long, uh, I guess for the past uh, six months, uh, we are collecting uh, waste from the doorstep of the 
villages, informal settlements. I would say that is unprecedented. I have not seen this anywhere, at least uh, during my course of service. I've seen this being done in, in the Porsche areas, but not in informal settlements. So, and it helps create some waves as well, uh, because the Porsche area started to put pressure on us that, no, give us this service as well. You should collect it from the uh, from the door-to-door -door collection. And we are running a successful pilot, I would say, uh, because we did it three months, started it uh, two to three months back. And uh, the area has become very clean. So because people used to dump uh, in the open open pits or open garbage or open uh, compactor bins. So now in that community, uh, areas look very fine. They look very clean. Well, so, I'm asking a question. I mean, so I, I just, as you're describing this, because um, an issue even here in Singapore has always been that you can, you know, create the infrastructure, you can build the, the necessary feeders and all of that. But ultimately it's down to that behavior. And I know you were, telling me about this uh, some time ago when we'd spoken about this, that um, how do you actually get the physical behavior to change where somebody says, I'm going to dispose of it where I'm meant to, I'm going to be more conscious of the way that I'm, you know, supporting this infrastructure, et cetera. There's, mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think there was a little bit there that you talked about how you then started to see, you know, with the local community, if that was something that could help bridge any gaps in that area. Oh, yes. Indeed, actually, uh, normally uh, our point of contact with the community are male members. That used to uh, happen. And we used to engage them and tell them and brief them. And we even carried out some walks as well, awareness campaigns, awareness walks as well, uh, by engaging the people from the markets, from the residential areas, we walk in the street. And we even campaigned on the cycles as well by taking kids on board that this is how this is being done to save the environment. We have to follow these uh, protocols. Uh, unfortunately, there was some improvement, but not to the extent uh, we had anticipated or we would have loved to see. Uh, so we started engaging uh, the women uh, in Tharia. Unprecedented, for the first time they came out from their houses to come and sit in a government office, uh, in a government lawn. In fact, we did it outside and uh, we heard their voices and concerns. And and they appreciated the initiatives that were taken by the internal board. Uh, and then we started in a very requesting mode. We tell them this is the challenge that we demanded from the uh, from your male counterparts uh, that the garbage should be disposed of uh, in a biodegradable bags, mm -hmm. right? And should be if if you do not if if the door to door collection is not provided at your doorstep. As, as is the case in some, some of the uh, housing colonies here. Uh, so put them in the garbage uh, pits. Normally what they do is, what happen is, uh, people normally they work there and they have helpers at their home. They come, they, this is their claim actually. They say they come and then they, uh, they won't make, they will come all the way from the house. Let's say they, will, they might reverse 50 meters from the house to reach the garbage pits but they are unwilling to take that extra five meter distance and would throw it right. uh, from, from that place and see if they can make a, uh, if they can put it in the garbage pit or not. If right. it goes, it finds, they, they celebrate. And if it doesn't, they uh, they're least bothered. They would say that only local government is there, they will take care of it. That's right. So to change this behavior, we spelled out this challenge in front of the uh, uh, women uh, folks of the community. And to our surprise, to our surprise, 80% of the community is now using biodegradable bags. Most of them, I, I, 
uh, I unfortunately have not quantified that, but most of the you know garbage pits, uh, people are people have started to put the rubbish uh, or the biodegradable bags in that garbage pits. Really? So uh, as I, I feel because they are the gateways, uh, they have a more impact. They have more control. And, uh, they can. They they were they were the missing link uh, in yes. our effort in our effort to uh, revolutionize or you know improve the solid waste management operation. That's so, so true. Because because so much of policy that way. I mean, you've built infrastructure. You you said at the beginning you started to sort of progress. Uh, you know the, the 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 community otherwise from a more manual system to a more digitized and technology driven one. Um, you started to build a community feel that wasn't reliant entirely on you know, uh, uh, central or federal sort of, you know, uh, grants, et cetera. So you found a way to build public private systems. Um, one of the things that's been said in terms of creating uh, livable cities and healthy cities is you need brave policy, right? And um, I guess there's always this question around local governance and how infrastructure, as we've just talked about, makes a big difference. And I'm going to switch a little bit here to talk about health. And I not sort of reflecting you in any which way as the expert when it comes to health, but then certainly around the areas that you've been sort of looking at and developing, um, you know, how, how do we carry some of these policy priorities, the infrastructure that you're building, the livable standards that you're now striving for, and some of the real hard things that, you know, where rubbish is thrown, where people are, you know, looking at, uh, you know, being a bit more sanitized in their approaches and all of that, the livable standards, how do you bring stakeholders that can come together and that this level of innovation, be it in the healthcare sector, be it in infrastructures or other places, how, how, how do you build that value creation, which you've already started to describe? And is there a way that perhaps what this region is actually facing is a big issue is that can we look at ways that a lot of infrastructure uh, uh, policies can also be brought into where healthcare right now, service mm -hmm. providers, the necessary awareness, the, you know, so, so the early diagnosis, those sort of things. If they're also brought in, do, do they feature as part of a master plan, for instance, I guess is my question. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, another interesting question, Rohit. And since you have touched upon the word master plan, uh, so I, I do believe that, that the answer to this question actually lies in a master plan. Because the uh, levers for, uh, to control you know, personalized healthcare or improve the overall health of the community, uh, those levers are already available with the local government. For instance, uh, you know, parks, for instance, sports ground, sports activities, eco-friendly buildings. These are some of the levers that are used for the master plan. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example from the other part of the world. Uh, you might have heard about the Bittenbrook. It's a health district in Louisiana State in US. Uh, they were facing a problem of unhealthy. Uh, you know, people were they were people were unhealthy because of their poor food choices. They lacked green spaces and uh, alternatives to driving. Uh, so chronic illnesses were prevalent there. For instance, obesity and diabetes. So what the, what the government did was they envisioned a master plan, uh, master plan by engaging health experts. Right. right. Unprecedented. I've never done a master planning because this is my sixth local government that I'm serving in. We have never done master planning by engaging the health. Oh, uh, fascinating. See, so basically what they proposed that, okay, the medical community 
took up the onus on them and see it as a health challenge, the master planning from the health perspective. And the other, other day, I, uh, because we are doing a master planning of Haria as well, and get, I gave this example uh, that this is how we can control the health of the community by actively, by making these places active, by making users actively use such places. So anyway, coming back to the Betten Rogue example, so they developed the pedestrian areas. They ensured that the uh, alternate routes are available for the cycling, for the walking, uh, and they improve their public spaces as we have done in Karia. Uh, so likewise, uh, as a result, as a result, uh, they were able to uh, transform that uh, community, uh, you know, once which was falling very low on the health rankings of the US. Now it's one of the top ranked. Uh, community there, well, uh, local government there. That's very so, fascinating because I'm sorry, I interrupted. You go on. No, no, please. Uh, I, I, was just, I was just, I was just echoing because it's it's fascinating to hear you give that perspective because you're 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 touching upon a very critical factor, and that is the social determinants of health, such yes. as the livability, the walkability. Uh, it's, it's it's always the idea that can we have more prevention than cure, right? I mean, if we can have a uh, equitable access to health, um, things that allow for people just to have an improved standard of living, you might be able to reduce the impact of, you know, dietary, uh, you know, poor dietary intakes yeah. or other aspects and, you know, uh, calorific rich nutrient, things like that, which are in the periphery, but then you're suddenly bringing, uh, an, uh, how to say, like a, like, a, like a better way that people can be uh, just managing their own health in a way. Sorry, but I uh, please please do go on because I was just getting quite uh, excited by what you were saying there. No, no, I'm I'm really happy to see that because that excitement transfers into my <laughs> energy as transfers uh, my energy as well. So um, now the same levers are being used in in Kharia as well. Um, if I give you an example of the Pakistan, uh, the data suggests that 40 percent of the diseases in Pakistan, the the burden of disease in Pakistan is due to uh, lifestyle, uh, right? And 38%, now 38 to 40% is because of the poor sanitation facilities or infectious diseases. So right. that's where solid waste management, that's where, uh, you know, having active public spaces, having a, a decent landfill site, I unfortunately couldn't touch upon that. So uh, that's, that's another topic uh, uh, that helped us improve the health of the people or the neighborhoods living in the near vicinity of the uh, of the landfill site uh, because there was a waste openly dumped for the past many many years i would say around roughly around 30 to 35 years and the only way to reduce the volume of that place was to put it on fire and that would create all kind of uh, uh, you know respiratory illnesses because the, there used to be a blanket people used to tell me because i i have experienced it twice uh, when i came here and uh, the people, the community tells that it used to be a blanket of clouds of the smoke and uh, those who could afford, they would move out of Kharia and to, uh, you know, spend their three to four days somewhere else so that it settles down. So we cleared that by, uh, you know, by carrying out trenches, by uh, separating the recyclable waste and put them into trenches and by planting uh, orchard on, on them. So, and now it's it's serving as a community, and we also planted vegetables there. So it's now it's kind of a serving as a community garden for the community. Wait, you and have to stop there. I mean, this I mean, uh, this is amazing. Uh, so so 
So you okay? No, you got to spend a few minutes on this one because I think the idea is that you're reducing from a pollution standards from infrastructure standards, but it's not just about uh, landfills and refills, but you're utilizing that area for organic vegetables and fruit and all that. I mean, you've, you've got to talk a bit about this. I think this is actually pretty fascinating. Sure, sure. Actually, the landfill site, uh, as per our uh, you know, master plan, the, the size of the landfill site was around 10 acres. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, the size, because of the unregulated dumping, the size expanded to around 30 to 35 uh, acres. Wow. So that's a lot. They're three times, roughly speaking, three times more than the specified area. Mm -hmm. uh, and the waste, uh, this, this local government was formed in 1959. Since then, that place is being used as a dumping site. So unfortunately, uh, there was used to be piles of garbage uh, there. And, and I got the opportunity to go and see here because we used to receive a lot of complaints, uh, not only uh, in, in written on, on the apps that we developed, but people used to come in bulk and complain about that because there were people living there and uh, uh, there were smell issues, there were visual noise sense as well. And the doctors, I, I carried out a meeting with some of the doctors who uh, work uh, with the community there. And they were of the view that the there are the number of respiratory illnesses. Uh, the prime source, in their opinion, was that landfill site. Oh, wow. probably. So we see it as a, not only as an environmental challenge but also a health challenge. Mm. And it took us a while because number of efforts were made in previous regime, but unfortunately, uh, none of them was uh, uh, was successful, or they were not able to achieve the uh, outcomes uh, of their policy interventions. So I would say we were lucky. We formed a team, we brought in the right stakeholders and experts, and we tried to figure out that how we can develop. And that's where the Singapore experience has really helped me out. Um, initially, we made a plan as per the plan of a Singapore, but then the cost would run in billions, not in millions, I would say billions of rupees. So we had to drop that idea and we had to find a local solution for a local problem. So uh, by engaging community, by giving them the ownership, we figured out that perhaps by excavating deep trenches, we can put this waste into uh, uh, into into the in, into the trenches. Because uh, if I share the profile of the waste, uh, most of it because it's a very green area, uh, that was leaves or branches uh, and some recyclable waste in form of aluminium, plastic, etc. Mm. And thirdly, uh, the household waste. So we categorized this waste, developed a plan that, okay, the organic waste would not reach the dumping site. Each of, each of the household or uh, you know, the large areas of the community as a whole would develop uh, composting sites. And we, uh, we helped them develop those composting uh, you know, pits uh, so that we may create a urea for, uh, and, and use it later. And for the trees and branches, we segregated it and put it in a separate place that, okay, this is a wood tall. Now this is a wood store and you, uh, if, if there is a branches issue or leaves issue, we can put it there. Uh -huh. and, and then because leaves is, it's, it decomposes very quickly. So that's, that's not an issue because the volume is more, but the weight is less. Right. And then can, uh, the final category was uh, of the, sorry, the second category was of the recyclable waste. We encourage our workers that, okay, if you collect it, then you can dispose it off. We don't need anything. So now 
uh, in a way we have helped them out yeah. that they they sell it and that is an additional income on them right so what's the benefit for us that it has reduced the size of the and it has reduced the volume of the of the waste mm. so by categorizing waste into different categories then the landfill side uh, we realized that perhaps we don't even need a 10 acres landfill site because now the reducible waste the hardly 20 from uh, hardly 20% of the total waste is the waste which should actually go into the landfill mm. so that's how we have been able to increase uh, the life of the landfill site and uh, by separating all those the wood uh, the recyclable waste and the leaves etc uh, and by dumping by dumping them we have started to plant uh, you know a different orchard orchards on it and vegetables the land which is what, what are you growing what's 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 the favorite what's the thing that's most uh, when you talk about orchards and things like that what sort of vegetables and fruit are you finding uh-huh. are you growing uh apple uh oh. and people used to say that it's very hard for apple to grow here but we have seen that it's uh, it has grown here uh guava is very much popular here uh mango trees they have survived here Yes, lychee has. We are doing good with lychee as well. And when when it comes to vegetables, the uh, you know day to day vegetables that we use are carrots, onion, uh, tomatoes, uh, lady finger, depending upon the weather. So so these these kind of vegetables. And anybody anybody can use. So yeah, I was I was in Vancouver recently, and I saw something that I haven't seen in a long time. And I find that I think even in Johannesburg, they have this these. you know areas wherever you have unutilized land and the yeah. government sort of says okay we're going to you know make sure that the soil and everything is done and then you come uh, or people can take little little tiny plots and have their own little vegetable or you know orchard or something like that and some of these plots are literally the size of a know, a small like even a carpet you know a large carpet area like literally it's that small and what's nice is that people come there and it's their little patch and they're growing their little thing and you know they're and it's all done in a very honest system i mean a lot of it actually i don't think they actually take home to consume but then they pass on for charities or whatever but it brings neighborhoods together because there's this one unused plot of land but no this this sort of reminded me of kind of you know something like that where it can go which is really really nice Oh, that's excellent! Thanks. Thank you for giving that example, and I would look into this. These things go. I mean, um, so look, I mean, I, I think one area that we've sort of been wanting to talk about, uh, because this is where I think when I first talked with you, Fahim, I was really curious to ask is, and, and let me let me give the pre uh, sort of the context for our listeners. Now, there's this idea behind universal healthcare, which um, I think Asia as a whole has been really contending and struggling with, because on one side there's a lot of essential diseases that are quite expensive and you know hard for governments to afford entirely but then on the other side you have you know let's say insurers and payers who then have to figure out how to manage those costs and so therefore you know UHC or universal healthcare and it's a WHO prerogative is to try and this equity back not just that UHC is something which gives free healthcare that's not what anybody wants but you're talking about equitable reach so for example you know getting more disease awareness and screening for women for avoidable types of cancers you know um, having the right sort of ways that uh, uh, potential you know pre diabetic or those who might have metabolic syndromes might be able to uh, live with their disease in more compliant ways so the idea of uhc stretching beyond just the concept of what you know uh, free healthcare and etc but actually becoming 
preventative training resource aspects as well. Now, I was really curious to ask you about, and I'm, forgive me if I uh, say this wrong, uh, but you know, Sehat uh, Sahulat Pakistan. Now, that is something that's been getting a lot of attention because in a way, as I've understood it, is that it brings the idea of universal healthcare, it brings multi-sectorial and private sector strategies together. And I think it's something which more people need to just basically know about. I wanna know more about, more about that. So in that context, do, do you wanna talk a bit about uh, this particular initiative? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, Sehat Sahulat uh, program is a flagship program of this government. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it is believed that this is a milestone towards social welfare uh, reforms because uh, what it has done is it has ensured that they uh, identified underprivileged citizens across the country get access to their entitled medical health mm -hmm. in a certain, a very dignified manner. So, and uh, interestingly, without any financial obligation. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind it is that uh, uh, in Pakistan, at least 60 to 70% of the payments are done in the healthcare sector are done out of the pockets. Mm -hmm. So which has a very, uh, uh, you know, severe impact, which severely impacts the uh, overall financial uh, capacity, uh, financial uh, financials of the uh, low household, uh, low people who are, uh, no, sorry, uh, uh, let, let me rephrase it. So it, it severely impacts the uh, poor. Mm -hmm. And the government is striving hard to lift everyone out of the poverty. And unfortunately, COVID-19 has pushed more people below the poverty line. Before, before COVID, we were roughly 30% of the Pakistanis were living under the poverty line. And uh, now the numbers must have increased. So this, this government, uh, the current government, when they, they formed a government in one of the provinces in Pakistan, they came up with this idea of universal uh, health uh, coverage uh, in that province, which is KPK. So after assuming uh, the power uh, in the federal government, the government introduced this program and uh, have very swiftly rolled it down in at least 68 districts of uh, different provinces. So currently, uh, the latest data suggests that around 27.6 million families in Pakistan has enrolled in this program. Uh, and there are around 3.3 million, uh, 3.2 million uh, hospital visits that have been carried out under this program. And let me brief you about a bit about this program. The, so this program works in a way that basically the government has given, uh, has allocated uh, 1 million rupees per family uh, to cater their needs of a secondary and a tertiary healthcare. So if uh, there are complexities in diabetes or if, if there is an renal failure, cardiovascular diseases, things like that, which are treated, this, these uh, uh, diseases have to be treated indoor. Mm -hmm. uh, so for indoor, uh, this Sehat Sudhat program is basically a program that covers that. And I have, I got, a, I got an opportunity to speak one of the local resident uh, uh, in Karia. Uh, so he was giving me an example that he was suffering from some kind of, uh, sorry, I'm not a medical person. So oh, here with my explanation. So sure. he was suffering from some sort of uh, cancer on his, uh, uh, you know, chin and under the under the ear. Uh, so he, he visited a primary health care unit and was referred to the uh, to secondary care and tertiary care. And they carried out his tests and they realized that perhaps they do not have the right kind of infrastructure or the 
experts to deal with it and they referred him to the metropolitan area which is lahore so they referred referred it to the lahore which is the capital of the punjab province right. so when their tests were carried out and finally uh, he was operated upon and uh, uh, then he was uh, relieved from the hospital the interesting thing is interesting thing is that he was not asked uh, even a single penny throughout uh, throughout this uh, you know uh, this journey starting from karia really uh, coming back from coming back to karia yes because he said that everything was covered under that program uh so every the doctors took care of it because they uh, it's it works very simply that they, they'll get your cnic number it is sent on a specific number that is 8500 okay. and if you're eligible then you'll get the response so sehat soldier program teams they are stationed at different hospitals uh, both in private and public the beauty of this system is that it covers it's not only covering the public hospital it's covering the private hospitals as well so you can get the treatment <laughs> from there as well Oh, so you can cross transfer from public and private under this under this national program. That's that's the beauty of this program. So it's kind of have integrated the existing infrastructure. Earlier, private sector was operating on its own. Exactly. Uh, public was operating on its own. Now, uh, if if let's say if Fahim knows uh, that where is the best facility available for this, I, I just need to be referred to that place. And if I am um, meet the criteria, then I'll be treated upon. and nobody charge me uh, a penny is one million rupees per year so for one year it's one million rupees wow. so so that's a very powerful uh, program and it has relieved so many people so uh, and independent um, uh, i was reading on the website that independent survey was conducted and 97% uh, 97% people were satisfied with the Services. Amazing. You know, I mean, see, th- this is why. And, and again, I, I, I turn to the listeners to sort of understand and appreciate what Fahim just described here, because the idea that um, our region and our our cities can continue to afford uh, illnesses that can you know, cost and the burden and the abilities, uh, uh, at least there are, you know, things like the initiative that Fahim just explained, Sehat Saulat Pakistan, means what he just said is that. from private to public and back again you can you can sort of crisscross right but end of the day there has to come a time where some of the infrastructures and some of the initiatives that local governance is doing and i think fam as you've sort of given these very interesting perspectives that there has to be uh, as as hard a word as it is to say a preventative goal that will avoid the slippery slope that it will ultimately become cost or burden at some point and you know we can look at the nhs and we can look at other places that are still doing such tremendous work and yet coming under you know that sort of pressure and you find even in here in singapore that there is now a a a a marked shift to sort of say let's get back let's get back control of let's say our diseases let's avoid you know situations that's going to take us down that path where as great as programs as sehat sohlat pakistana it doesn't mean that we can all live as unhealthy as possible or ignore the situations or forget about the screening but go for that give access there so this is change of balance which ultimately is going to make these sort of more scalable and affordable and continue now this is why a conversation like this for him has to probably become a multi episode discussion because uh, you know uh, we 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 need to bring in more voices and talk about this and that's something that you know we are going to be doing uh with you on back on the show um but let me ask you in a 
I guess as a summary way that as we sort of pull this all together, we are seeing that, you know, uh, you're taking things one step at a time. You're looking at things in a multi-sectorial perspective. Clearly, one can't boil the ocean, as they say, and try and do everything all together. But if I could ask you for your words of wisdom to leave us with, uh, in, in your impression, what's the fundamental role at the end of the day of public and private sectors to enable this sort of integrated function? And has the post-pandemic times changed that? What's, what's, your, what's your take on public-private sectors now compared to, I don't know, two and a half, three years ago? Has it changed? Uh, well, definitely, uh, there, is a, there is a marked uh, change uh, uh, when it comes to the services provided by both the public as well as the private, private uh, sector. And I believe both of them have tried their best to improve their uh, capacities and uh, reach uh, to serve the public. Uh, uh, private sector, as we all know, that it's more kind of a profit-driven, profit-driven. So they do not try to invest in the areas uh, of the public goods, for instance, by building roads or by uh, you know, providing parks and uh, public spaces, because that's where they may, not get the, that, that they may not get the best return on their investments. So such things should be taken care of by the government, whereas the government must provide a level playing field and enabling environment for, for the private sector and let the best, best team and let the best in the town come and create that value. And then government should create, try to, uh, you know, capitalize on that value and build that ecosystem. So I would say that both the public and the private sector, they uh, have to work, they have to work uh, hands in glove. Uh, one, uh, but the prime role of the government should be regulatory on the regulatory side and only intervene when the government, when the market fails. Otherwise, the market should be uh, given a free hand to uh, come and uh, create that innovation and yeah, so uh, sort of having, uh, reducing, I guess, you know, reducing this sort of fragmentation, but at the same time, helping to bring, uh, one can say, integrated policy delivery, right? So, I mean, it takes two hands to clap. And therefore, a lot of these things get built when you look at the roles of private and public. That's very well put. And I think as we begin to understand, as this dust settles into this next sort of chapter that we're all going to be living in, it'll be very interesting to track and see. Look, well, Fahim, thank you so much for the time. I know your schedule is chock-a-block and you've got so much going on. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward at some point to uh, seeing videos and photos of the lovely mangoes and lychees and lady fingers that are growing in the, in the, in the places that you've now built and developed. Um, and what we'll be doing uh, as we sort of post um, this podcast uh, in our social media, uh, Fahim, is I think some lovely photos of... Uh, uh, the city of Paran, which I think everyone would love to see and uh, visualize uh, the way that some of this is now looking. Um, so thank you so much for that, uh, for your time with us today. Um, I'd like to obviously thank the Voices Project Asia for enabling this initiative and helping to bring some of these stories and learnings to life. Um, well, look, stay tuned for our next episodes. Uh, we're now on a bit of a roll. We've got such diverse conversations and such interesting people who are doing such amazing work that we can all learn from. And you can find all of these up on our Spotify channel. You can also get them on the rss.com as well. Um, or you can sort of venture over to our website at www.thevoicesprojectasia.org. So thank you so much for listening. And I guess just as I always say, 
just remember this that we can make a change happen it's just really just one step at a time thank you so much all for for listening bye bye